we've been doing an overview of each book of the Bible for several weeks now, and uh, so tonight we find ourselves in in First Kings. This is one of those books that I think sometimes um, is intimidating to folks who just pick the Bible up and begin to read because of sometimes confusing names and the chronology that can sometimes be difficult uh, to follow after. I've, I've given you something of a, a pattern that the narrative goes by that's in your outline there. That might be helpful in sort of following with the flow of the book. I'm not really going to work through that um, this evening. We'll kind of deal with more of the meat and potatoes of the text itself. It, it's, it's the history of Israel which begins with David uh, transitioning to Solomon, his son, and the and First Kings takes us through the reign of Jehoshaphat and Judah and Ahaziah and Israel, which is picked up in Second Kings and then completed. But really, the simpler way of thinking about First and Second Kings is that it takes us through the period of Israel's history when the nation had kings. If you go all the way back to the beginning, you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Joseph is carried away into slavery in Egypt, 400 years in Egypt. Moses leads them out. Joshua leads them in the conquest. Joshua dies, and then the period of the judges begins. 400 years of judgeship ended by Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet anoints the first king, who is Saul. Then he anoints the second king, who is David, which begins first kings. That's a really brief synopsis of Israel's history. And from the first king to the last king takes us from uh, this point in Israel's history to the end of the Old Testament. There's about a 400-year window of silence between the close of Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament. But that is just briefly the way the history of the Old Testament goes. So when you think about the book of Kings you'll automatically be reminded that the book of Kings is about that period of Israel's history when Israel herself was ruled over by king. The first half of the book is about the kingdom under the reign of Solomon. David is dying when 1 Kings opens, and he hands the reins of his kingdom over to his son Solomon, who rules rather well. In fact, if your impression has been that the kingdom was better under David than Solomon, then your impression was incorrect because things were better under Solomon than they were at any other time in Israel's history. The, the boundaries of Israel as a nation were broader during Solomon's reign than under any other king in her history. Uh, financially, the people of Israel were better off under the reign of Solomon than at any other time in the history of Israel. You could argue that there were other times in Israel's history when there was a greater sensitivity to the, to the work of God and a movement of his spirit, that there were other uh, highs in Israel's religious experience that were higher than that of Solomon's reign. But Solomon built the temple, and the glory cloud of God comes down, descends on the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem under the reign of Solomon in a way that really is reminiscent of what God did um, at Mount Sinai. And then, of course, Solomon doesn't finish very well with 700 wives and 300 concubines. We'll get to that a little later on. Then the second part of First Kings, the second half of the book, is about the divided kingdom. And understanding this division was, for me, as a new student of the Bible, a, a very helpful insight. For, I, I began to understand the language of the Bible better when I understood how the northern and the southern kingdoms divided. We'll come to that in, in just a, a few moments. 
There's a key theme in First and Second Kings that you've heard me talk about a lot already in our overview series. The book of First Kings is driven by, and Second Kings, driven by something called retribution theology. In the New Testament, we would say, you reap as you sow. If you do badly, you will receive bad things, but if you do right before the Lord, you will receive good things. Now, we noted weeks ago, but it's worth saying again, that just because doing bad things means getting bad outcomes and doing good things means getting good outcomes, that is not the same as saying if you get good things, it means you've been good. Or if bad things happen to you, it means you've been bad. Those are two things altogether different. The book of Job helps us to counterbalance uh, those two ends, those two uh, uh, expressions of how God is at work in the world and our human experience here. But there can be no mistaking the fact that in the experience of Israel's kings and in the experiences of Israel as a nation, when they are faithful to God, things go better for them. When they are unfaithful to God, bad things happen to them. That's the reality in our life, isn't it? Sometimes in seasons of faithfulness, bad things happen to us. But in the midst of that, there is no mistaking. Oh, wow. I've been working on my singing voice. What do y'all think? I've always said the only thing worse than a preaching singer is a singing preacher. We'll, we'll get it figured out here in just a minute. Can y'all hear me? Am I still hot? No? We will be in just a minute. Now I have no idea what we were talking about now. Retribution theology. Even when the bad things are happening to us, we're always better off pursuing obedience to God than we would be otherwise. You might be disobedient and manufacture some positive outcome. Like you can steal and have more stuff, but your sin always finds you out. It, it, it always comes back to bite you. If you obey God, you will be blessed. If you disobey God, you will be cursed. That's what retribution theology is about. And retribution theology comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 28, which you will hear me make reference to so many times you'll get tired of hearing about Deuteronomy 28. But that chapter is the summarization of Deuteronomy's doctrine that drives everything else in the Old Testament. Are y'all hearing me better now? Am I hot again? Okay, perfect. All right, so the divided kingdom is what's talked about in the latter part of uh, First Kings, and, and again, it's driven by this whole business of retribution theology. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. So I've done what I usually do, and I've given us here a, a list four significant events from within the book of First Kings that will help us to sort of capture uh, the overall meaning of the book itself. The first of these is in chapter 3. Solomon is by now king, and Solomon requests from God wisdom. Now, Solomon's already a, a very wise man, but when God presents him with the opportunity to make his one wish, he asks that God would give him the ability to lead the people of God well, and for his honor in making such a humble request, 
God is pleased to grant it. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon brought her to live in the city of David until he finished building his palace, the Lord's temple, and the wall surrounding Jerusalem. However, the people were sacrificing on the high places because until that time a temple for the Lord's name had not been built. Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the statutes of his father David, but he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Even early in Solomon's life and leadership, there are indications of waywardness. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place, and he made his offering, a thousand burnt offerings on that, offer, uh, on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God asked, What should I give you? And Solomon replied, You've shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You've continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne, as it is today. Lord my God, you've now made your servant king in my father David's place, yet I'm just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too numerous to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an obedient heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. And so God said to him, Because you've requested this and didn't ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked discernment for yourself to understand justice, I will therefore do what you've asked. I'll give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I'll give you what you didn't ask for, both riches and honor, so that no man in any kingdom will be your equal during your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands just as your father David did, I'll give you a long life. And Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. And he went to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and he held a feast for all his servants. First thing Solomon does after he is granted this request for wisdom is he gets his worship right. Did you notice that? He went from making, making offerings, uh, burnt offerings at the altar of Gibeon to worshiping before the covenant of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in the city of Jerusalem uh, after waking up from, from this dream. There's, there's wisdom and humility in the request that Solomon makes. Lord, help me to know what's right and what's wrong. That's not a bad way to pray. If, if you're operating under the assumption that everything in this life is crystal clear, black and white, you're wrong. Things get awfully gray, awfully cloudy in the here and now. And we need wisdom from God to be able to navigate those circumstances. Solomon, as a result of his wisdom, leads the nation well. He is world-renowned for his leadership skills, for his savvy, for his... Uh, insights politically and militarily. Israel prospers incredibly under the leadership of Solomon. You can look back through history at what Solomon did, and, and, and in spite of the fact that Israel is this teeny tiny nation, what Solomon does there during his reign is really rather impressive. Um, economists estimate that it would take north of two billion dollars in today's money to construct the, the, the temple that Solomon constructed in the city of Jerusalem. Not to mention the palaces that Solomon built, 
the gardens that he built. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks of all of these construction projects that Solomon undertakes within his leadership. It is an amazing thing that Solomon is able to pull off. He is an international superstar. Uh, uh, neighboring nations are sending their political leaders to Solomon to hear of his wisdom and to gain insight from him. The best example, the, the illustration of Solomon's wisdom is found in the remainder of chapter 3. I can't tell you how many times I've thought through this passage over the last several weeks. We won't read all of those verses. We'll just talk through here. There, there are two women who are living together. Both of them have children. In the night, one woman rolls over on her child and the child dies. And heartbroken over the loss of this child, she steals her roommate's child. The next day, they're brought before Solomon for him to make a judgment between them as to who the child belongs to. And Solomon says, bring a sword, I'll cut the child in half. We'll just split him between the two of you. And the real mother, naturally, uh, cries out and asks that the child's life be spared, that he be given to this roommate of hers. Solomon knows there's something Solomon knows that a real mother would would rather give her child away than to see them undone to see harm or damage done to them and so Solomon grants the custody of the child to the mother who cried out for the life of the child and the nation marvels at his great wisdom and the discernment that he shows in this particular case. Solomon builds a temple. He leads the people well, but he's got a weakness. Solomon has a woman problem. Solomon's woman problem turns into a spiritual problem and morphs into all sorts of problems. In fact, I, Solomon takes women problems and multiplies them many, many times over to the extent of 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, there are other issues that go along with this. Not only are there the moral issues of sexual purity, but there are the issues of idolatry and pagan worship that come along with these marriages and the alliances that are being established with neighboring nations as well. Now, during David's reign, there is a building expectation that this is the kind of king that we have always needed. Remember, we're just coming out of the period of the judges when if Israel didn't learn anything else, they learned that they needed a king. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes, and it was absolute chaos for the nation of Israel. We know we need a king. We, we made a bad decision right out of the gate with Saul. We, we, we were trying to pick someone who looked like the neighboring nation's kings. But now we've got David, a man after God's own heart. He's the kind of king we need. And David, failing to, to do some of the things that he needed to do, dies with a certain degree of disgrace. He, he fails to be the king that they needed. But Solomon's going to be it, right? And the boundaries are broader than they've ever been before. And we've never known this kind of economic prosperity and this kind of military fortitude. Solomon is going to be the man until he had 700 marriages and took 300 concubines. And yet again, the people of God are disappointed that this king has failed to meet their expectations. Turn over to chapter 12. This is where the nations are, are divided. By nations divided, I mean this is where Israel and Judah separate. This is where they go different ways here. So from this point forward, when you see Israel 
in the Old Testament, it might be a reference to all of Israel, all of the 12 tribes, but it's likely a reference to the 10 tribes of the north. All of the kings of Israel were bad kings. There's 40 kings in all, but all of them in Israel were bad. And most of the kings in Judah were bad, but there were some that were good. Just think, Israel bad, Judah good. This is always a helpful way to remind Southerners of which side's good and which side's bad. In the Bible, people in the north are bad and people in the south are good. That's the way it goes in the Bible. Now, I don't know about everything else, but in the Bible, that's how it is. So you have 10 tribes in the north and you have two tribes in the south, a total of 12 tribes in Israel. And, and Judah and Benjamin are in the south, but Benjamin is so small they just call it by by Judah because it's the largest tribe there. Ephraim is the largest tribe in the north, so sometimes you'll hear Israel referred to or see Israel referred to as Ephraim, especially in books like uh, Hosea and, and Amos. But it's here in chapter 12 that the nations divide. Anyone want to guess or remember what, what the issue is, what the political issue is that divides the nation forever? It's taxes. Some things stay the same. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Chapter 12 and verse 1, Rehoboam, that Solomon's son, went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon's presence, Jeroboam stayed in Egypt. They summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father made our yoke difficult. You therefore lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam replied, Go home for three days and then return to me. So the people left. The king, Re the king Rehoboam, consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, How do you advise me to respond to these people? And they said, Today, if you'll be a servant to these people and serve them, and if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they'll be your servants forever. But he rejected the, the advice of the elders who had advised him and consulted with the young men who'd grown up with him and served him. He asked them, What message do you advise we send back to these people who said to me, Lighten the yoke of your father, the, the, the yoke your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him told him, This is what you should say to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. This is what you should tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Although my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. Now, to sort of provide some commentary and explanation for what's happened here, Rehoboam has risen kingship, and he has two groups of counselors. He has some elders who have some experience, who have been with his father, and he has some knucklehead boys that he grew up with. And he goes to the elders and they say, now your, your father led us well, but he required a lot from us. In order to build a $2 billion temple and palaces and gardens and expand the boundaries of Israel, it required heavy taxation. So now if you really want to win the hearts of the people, then re reduce the burden that you've put upon them. And then he goes to those knucklehead boys he grew up with who were never any good for him in the first place. And he says, what do you think we ought to do? And they say, beat your chest and require more of them than your father even required. And in doing so, he drove a wedge between the people of Israel, already on the precipice of division, and Israel went her way to the north, and Judah remained her way 
in the south. Now, one of the things that makes understanding the chronology of First and Second Kings difficult is the similarity that exists between the names here, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And there are other names that sound very similar. In fact, at one point, you have a king in Israel and a king in Judah who have the same name. They are serving at the same time. Most of your translations have been kind enough to make one Jehoram and the other Joram, but in the Hebrew text, they have the exact same name and they are kings at the exact same time. I want to encourage you that you don't need to master the chronology of First and Second Kings to appreciate what God is communicating to us here through the books of First and Second Kings. You don't even really have to be able to pronounce the names of the kings in First and Second Kings for them to be accessible. The trick in pronouncing biblical names is to just do it with confidence. And whether you're right or wrong, people think that you actually know what you're talking about. There's a great deal there that's on the surface for us. We have ready access to that's, that's good for us. There's good practical counsel here within the text to seek the counsel of, of older uh, men who've experienced in whatever field you find yourself in. It doesn't discount uh, the counsel, the accountability that can be provided by brothers or sisters who are at the same age or the same station in life. But here, uh, Rehoboam clearly uh, takes the wrong kind of counsel and the nation drifts off uh, into division. Now, here's the problem with being divided as a nation with Judah in the south and, and Israel in the north. Where is Jerusalem? Jerusalem's in Judah. And where is all worship supposed to take place? In Jerusalem. Well, what is Israel supposed to do for a place of worship? Well, initially, the plan was that they would cross the border over into the southern kingdom of Judah with their brothers, and they would worship there in Jerusalem. But Jeroboam, out of fear that his people's heart would be won over politically by the southern kingdom and that he would ultimately lose his influence in the north, began to establish for them stations that they were able to go to and to worship. The problem with that is that it violates the command of God. God had established Jerusalem as the holy city. So not only has the nation now divided, but there's a theological crisis in the northern kingdom. And the absence of the ability to worship according to the commands of Scripture would mean that for the rest of Israel's history, she would exist in a state of obedience against God. By the time we come to the end of 2 Kings, if you're just reading through First and 2 Kings, by the time you come to the end of this book, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have collapsed. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, fell under uh, the Assyrian king, and they were completely destroyed. The Assyrians' policy was not only to come in and to overtake a people and to exile many of their citizens and to deposit them in other nations, but to deposit citizens from other nations within that same territory so that it would have the effect, essentially, of breeding out that particular person. That ethnicity could, in some ways, be bred out, or at least... The traditions, the culture of that area could be diminished by implanting other cultures and in certain cases exporting that culture into other conquered areas. 
So that's exactly what Assyria does. When uh, Assyria comes in 722 B.C., they begin to export many of the Israelite people into other lands, and they begin to import people from other lands into the nation of Israel. The product of that intermingling, the union of those neighboring nations imported by the Assyrians and the Israelites that once lived there produced the Samaritans that Jesus interacts with in the New Testament. That people detested by so many in the gospel account. The woman at the well in John 4 was the ancestor of this relationship between neighboring nations imported by the Assyrians and the Israelites who were in the north. Judah was warned when Israel fell. Israel fell as, as, as sort of an example, a word of warning to Judah in the south. If you don't get your act together, you're not far behind them. There were good kings who came along that brought reforms to Judah, that, that worked uh, to bring spiritual revival and renewal. Hezekiah and Josiah are examples of those kinds of kings who sort of fanned fan the flame of of, of good biblical religion in the nation of Judah, but for the most part they continued to wander until 586 they fell as well to the Babylonians and were carried away into exile. And that's where Ezekiel enters in and the book of Daniel where Daniel's tossed into the lion's den. But that's essentially the chronology that you're working with. This is a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. When the north goes her way and the south goes her way, it means a theological crisis in the north, but ultimately it means the beginning of the end for both uh, nations, both uh, in the north and in the south. By the time you come to chapter 13, uh, the prophet begins to be a major feature in First and Second Kings. We're not going to deal with that a great deal tonight. We'll pick that up next week, Lord willing, uh, or in the weeks ahead when we talk about Second Kings and Elijah and Elisha. But the prophet is hugely important. The, the prophet is, is, is there not to... The prophet is there to rebuke the king. He's not there as the king's puppet. He, he's not there to prop the king up. The prophet is there to say in the king's court, thus saith the Lord. Whether what he said was good for the king or bad for the king, the prophet was to be faithful to what God had led him to say. We need a, a handful of prophets like that in our day and age as well. In chapters 15 and 16, there's a new, a new king in, Isra in Israel. Remember we said all the kings in Israel were, were bad kings. And a man named Amri takes over as king in Israel and eventually is replaced by his son Ahab. And Ahab is the worst king that Israel ever had. From this point forward in 1 Kings, Ahab and Elijah are the personification of evil and good, and they're constantly doing battle one with the other. My favorite passage in 1 Kings is over in chapter 18, when there is the Old Testament equivalent of the showdown at the O.K. Corral. Ahab's prophets, the prophets of Baal, and Elijah, the prophet of God, duel it out at Mount Carmel. They prepare for themselves a sacrifice, and fire is to be called down from God. In chapter 18 and verse 1, the Bible says, After a long time the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go and present yourself to Ahab. I'll send rain on the surface of the land. This is after a, a, a long famine. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and the famine was severe in Samaria. 
They had called for Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord and took 100 prophets and hid them, 50 men to a cave, and divided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land to every spring of water and to every wadi. Perhaps we'll find grass so we can keep the horses and mules alive and not have to destroy any cattle. And they divided the land between them in order to cover it, and Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went the other way by himself. They're looking for Elijah. While Obadiah was walking along the road, Elijah suddenly met him. When Obadiah recognized him, he fell on his face to the ground and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he replied, It is. Go and tell your lord, Elijah is here. But Obadiah said, What sin have I committed that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to put him to death? As the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my Lord's not sent someone to search for you. When they said he's not here, he made that kingdom or nation swear they'd not found him. Now you say, go tell your Lord Elijah is here. But when I leave, the Spirit of the Lord may carry you off to someplace I don't know. And when I go report to Ahab and he doesn't find you, he'll kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Wasn't it reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of the prophets of the Lord, fifty men to a cave, and provided them with food and water. Now you say, go tell your Lord, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Obadiah doesn't even want to go take the report to Ahab that Elijah has been spotted out of fear that God would swoop him up and take him somewhere else. In verse 20, Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. And Elijah approached, and the approached all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. In other words, today you're going to get to make up your mind. You're going to decide for yourselves whether God is God or Baal is God. There is a misunderstanding about the issues that Israel had in the Old Testament. The issue is not that Israel sometimes worshiped God and sometimes they worshiped Baal or some other God. It seldom was that the case. The issue is that they always managed to find ways to marry other gods with the true God. It wasn't that they left behind the God of the Bible. It, it was that they, they managed to incorporate their worship of other gods in various ways into their worship of the God of the Bible. This has always been the great danger for God's people. It, 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 Satan is not so much interested in completely pulling us away from true worship. We'd be too wise for that. Surely we'd be able to see that one coming. But to contaminate, to pollute the worship of the one true God with notions, ideas, and and even worship, it's directed in altogether the wrong direction. To mingle the worship of the true and living God with the worship of dead idols. That's been Satan's tactic. And it's still the danger for God's people. So Elijah said, today's the day. You're going to make up your mind. There will be no more worshiping God and Baal in Israel. You're either going to worship Baal or you're going to worship God, and when the day is over, it's going to be clear whose side who is on. Elijah said to the people, Am I the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men? In verse 23, Let two bulls be given to us. They're to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I'll prepare the other bull, place it on the wood, but not light the fire. 
Then you call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers with fire. He is God. Now, the interesting thing is that Baal is supposed to be the God of fire. But Elijah set the deal up where the God who answers by fire, he is God. And so the prophets of Baal come out, all 450, and they dance around, and they do their incantations and all that they do, and they cut themselves, and they bleed about the altar, and they cry out for hours and hours and hours, and nothing happened. And Elijah comes out, and, and he instructs the servants to dig a ditch around the sacrifice and to fill it up with water. He's, he's making sure that there's no sleight of hand here. There's no trickery about what Elijah intends to do there uh, with this sacrifice. And whereas the prophets of Baal had danced around that sacrifice all day, Elijah prayed but a brief prayer, and the fire of God fell, and it consumed the burnt offering. And there at Mount Carmel it was determined that the God of heaven, he is God, and Baal is no God at all. The prophets of Baal were, were killed. I'd like to tell you that Elijah left this experience with a sense of great victory, but in no time we find him out in the desert crying and asking that God would kill him. It's often the case that depression settles in after a season of great spiritual victory. How often have you experienced that? God moves in your life in a special way. You come to a Sunday service and God just touches your life. There's something magnificent that happens only to walk in the front door of your house and find that the world is falling in around your ears. It almost always works this way. It's the devil's great tactic. Elijah succumbs to that temptation himself, but ultimately remains faithful to God, and God uses Elijah in the most incredible of ways. Elijah becomes the prototypical prophet in Israel. Every other prophet is modeled after Elijah. Elijah even sets the dress code for prophets in Israel. Do, do, you, do you know why when John the Baptist came as a prophet in the Gospel of Matthew that he was dressed in camel hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey? Because that's what Elijah did. And if you wanted to be a good prophet, you, you did what, what good prophets do, you know? You, you, you carried yourself, you conducted yourself after the manner of a faithful prophet. Certainly, Elijah was just that a faithful prophet. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Malachi that Elijah was to come again. And Jesus makes it clear that John the Baptist was Elijah come again. One come in the spirit of John the Baptist as the trailblazer, as the forerunner to Christ himself. There is this continual moral decline both in Israel and in Judah throughout the books of First and Second Kings. It's certainly true of 1 Kings, but it's just reinforced over and over and over again in 2 Kings as well. And at, the, at the end of 2 Kings, the, the, the king of Judah in the line of David has been carried away captive, but, but he's alive. There's just this little, this little inkling of hope that remains for the line of David. Because remember what the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God said, I'm going to give you a king in the line of David. He's going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. It's always going to be a king in the line of David. And the people of Israel by the end of 2 Kings are about this close to having their hopes and dreams dashed that God would not do for them what he had formerly promised he would do. 
there's a greater lesson that's learned in both first and second kings. If the lesson of Judges was we need a king, the lesson of first and second kings is we don't need just any king, but a certain kind of king. Not just a king in the line of David, but a king like King Jesus. A king better than David. A king better than Solomon. We, we, we really do need Jesus. And so here, the, the product of, of all of our efforts at pronunciation and our working through the sometimes challenging chronology of First and Second Kings is a very straightforward gospel lesson for you and for me. You need Jesus as the king of your life, and I do too. The world needs Jesus as the king of our lives. He's got the situation well in hand. Aren't you glad that Jesus is king? I hope that over the next few weeks, we're entering into 2020. Just days from now, it will be 2020. Can you believe it? And so it will mark the beginning of a presidential election year. And you're going to be bombarded with all kinds of ads, and there'll be discussion, and you'll be tempted to be drawn into those things. I, I hope that with every ad that rolls across your television screen, you'll be reminded of the confidence we have in knowing that our primary citizenship is in heaven, that we have an everlasting king with a 100% approval rating who always does what is right for his people. Aren't you glad for Jesus?